From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to a special edition of Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. With the athletic season officially reaching a close, we wanted to reflect on the year that was and get a big picture perspective on some of the key topics affecting the Gators from Scott Strickland. In our annual end-of-year chat with the athletic director, we covered the work being done under new coaches to build football, men's and women's basketball, and soccer, his favorite moments from the last 10 months, the imminent opening of the Crown Jewel Heavener Football Training Center, the status of the long-planned rejuvenation of the swamp, how the entire program is adjusting to the rapidly changing world of NIL deals, where he sees the SEC landing when it comes to football scheduling and opponents, the complicated future of the college football playoff, and more. But to get us started, we had to talk about the remarkable conclusion to the athletic year that saw both the men's and women's track and field programs claim national titles in Oregon. It was, well, it was obviously funny time you went championship and um, to see the men and women go back to back. That's pretty unusual. First time I think it's happened in seven years in the NCAA at the outdoors so that you know that that right there is special. So anywhere that would have happened in the school year, it would it would have been meaningful. But uh, yeah, the, to to have that to be the last athletic event of this school year, uh, you know, kind of uh, creates a little momentum going into the off season. And then you you know you look at softball making it back to the college world series here this month as well. Uh, June, you know, uh, baseball hosting a regional was not able to to get that last game, but uh, you know, there's you you do sense like everything ended on a on an uptick and, um, you know, finished uh, another top five finish in the director's cup for the 13th straight year. And, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of successes and a lot of, uh, points of pride that Gators can point to this year. Yeah. And, and you just mentioned a few of them. I'm curious for you personally, looking back at this entire athletic year, what were some of the highlights for you? What were some of the moments that, that stand out in your memory? Um, wow. That's a great question. You know, the three national titles, you know, men's tennis winning their fourth SEC, men's swimming and dive winning their 10th straight SEC, uh, gymnastics winning, I think it's their fourth straight, um, and, uh, you know, finishing runner-up at the NCAAs. Um, you know, the the women's basketball team getting back to the NCAA tournament um, and and the way they responded to Kelly and, and you know, that was uh, obviously something that was that was fun to, to observe. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of it, it's, you know, I'm, I don't want to go down the individual path because I'll leave somebody off because we had so many incredible ones. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I could, we could spend the whole podcast just talking about track and field, but swimming and dive and, you know, gymnastics and, and then the other team sports, uh, we continue to be blessed with, uh, you know, really special young people. And, um, you know, we always talk about, uh, the championships piece and, you know, whether it's the five conference championships or three national titles this year, um, you know, our student athletes had another great year academically. Uh, championship experience in the classroom and on the field. We had 92 athletes that graduated. Our graduation success rate was 92%, which is above the, the national average. Wow. Um, 
And then our, you know, our cumulative GPA for the spring for all of our athletes was 3.21. So they, they continue to make us proud. Uh, this was also a, a year of lots of change. And I want to ask you about some of those changes and, and sort of where they are now. Uh, let's start at the top, obviously, with football. Um, you know, Billy Napier's been around for a good bit now, I guess six or seven months. No games coached at this point. But what have you seen from him so far and the, the steps he's taken to set that program up for success starting this fall? Yeah, man, I, we could we could spend a while talking about Billy and all his positive qualities uh, just as a person, you know, the way he, uh, his humility, his selflessness, uh, his attention to detail and organization, his work ethic, which is, is, uh, is off the charts, the caliber of the people he's brought in, you know, they, there's this, the saying that uh, you can tell a lot about somebody by who they surround themselves with. He surrounded himself with a really impressive staff that not only have done really good work, but, you know, they kind of fit, the Gators and, and the UAA. And, and so that's, you know, a credit to Billy that he is, he's been able to pull that together and, and the buy-in he's got from his players in a short period of time. I know this is not something necessarily the fans can see unless, mm-hmm. you know, maybe on social media or something or, or reading interviews, but you know, just those of us who are in the program, you know, there's, there's a, there's a incredibly high level of buy-in in a short period of time from the group of players he inherited which says a lot about his leadership ability to come in and kind of make that impact uh, in short order. But, you know, he's, he's incredibly positive. He's incredibly, uh, there's a plan for a plan, right? Everything is organized and he's, he's just been, he's been a joy to to kind of work with in this short period of time. You know, you, you mentioned it, he's yet to coach a ball game here. And, you know, when it's third and seven is, is when we'll all figure out how the, how the public reacts, how Gator Nation reacts, but as far as the kind of person we got and his ability to, uh, to, to have a vision for how he wants skater football to look and be, uh, I don't think we could have a better person leading our program. And I'm, I'm incredibly excited about um, the job he's, he's done up to this point and what he's going to do in the future. And similarly, no games coached yet for uh, for Todd Golden, and he's been around a, a little less time than, than Coach Napier has. Um, but similar question, in the time that he's been on the job, a few months now, what have you seen from him in terms of how he's shaping the program and his plan for where Gator basketball goes next? You know, I could use a lot of the same adjectives. You know, Todd, Todd is, uh, he's got this infectious personality, right, and, and super high energy that jumps out at you the minute you meet him, obviously incredibly polished, but really bright, really organized, has plans. You know, there's been a lot made of the, you know, the analytics Mm -hmm. and the way he uses data to structure the program and run the program. But to me, that's just an offshoot of being thoughtful and having, you know, being strategic in how you go about what you do, whether it's roster building, whether it's game planning, whether it's how you practice, you know, I feel the same. I, I feel similarly to him as as I did as I mentioned Billy, and and, and we could say the same thing about Samantha Bohan and, and Kelly Ray. They all really fit the University of Florida, you know. And and by that I mean they're they're incredibly competitive, hardworking people who um, who have gotten over themselves. Right? It's not about them. It's about the people they lead. It's about the the you know uh, the being you know making the University of Florida as successful as possible, and. Um, you know, I, I feel like they all have incredibly bright futures. Todd, Todd is, uh, because of his age, people tend to think that, of him being a little bit uh, uh, of an anomaly there. But, you know, he's, he's, he's already accomplished some pretty impressive things, taking San Francisco their first NCAA tournament in 25 years. 
And, you know, when, when you spend any amount of time with him, you come away really excited for whatever it is he's going to be doing. Uh, one of the interesting things about Todd's story is when he got through playing professionally overseas, he came back. He was actually in, in sales, yeah, sports sponsorships for a couple of years and, and was doing pretty well. I mean, financially was doing pretty well at that. Mm-hmm. I always feel like if you have to, people who sell for a living, you have to have a, uh, an internal drive and motor, and you have to have the ability to connect with people in order to be successful doing that. And all those are traits that are going to, you can, you can see how he's taken those traits and has applied that to the sport of basketball and added his, his own intellect and, and strategy to it. And I think that's really going to benefit the Gators. And as far as, as Coach Golden, and you mentioned Samantha Bohan and, and what she's going to bring to soccer, I guess in all of these, when you're going through the process of interviewing and, and of evaluating coaches, how much of the equation is, well, this is their style, this is their system? Like for Todd Golden, were you concerned with how he was going to get results or more just about the person, their energy and their leadership is, I imagine that's a bigger piece, but I'm curious how much is the style of play or the system factor into to your decision-making? Yeah, very little. And and I will uh, candidly admit that, that I, I have put too much emphasis in the past when I've been in hiring situations um, on that. And sometimes that's worked and sometimes it's not, but uh, there's, to me, there's three things a coach has to do to be successful. One, they have to be able have the ability to attract the right people for their team, whether that's players or whether it's staff, um, attract the right people. Number one, number two, they've got to create a culture and accountability to lead that group. And then the third thing they have to do is put that group in a position to be successful, which to me, that third group is what you're talking about. That style of play. That's that's in-game strategy. That's game planning. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't, if you're not good at those first two, that third really does not matter. And it doesn't. And it doesn't matter how good you are at that third one. If you don't get the right people and have the ability to attract the right people, and you don't have a plan to lead them and hold them accountable and set a vision for the entire organization, game day really is inconsequential at that point because you've already lost before you've shown up. Mm-hmm. So. Um, one of the things I really valued in, in all these coaches, and, and I think the successful coaches who are already here at UF, uh, you could say the same thing about, you know, the Mike Holloways, the Bron Sheldons, the Roland Thornquist, the Mary Wises, all those. You could go on down the list, Jenny Rowland, um, J.C. Deacon. All of those um, have the ability – they've shown the ability. They're gonna, they can recruit the right kind of individual, both from a talent standpoint and character standpoint. They can lead them, and then they help them be successful on game day. You mentioned a, f- a few minutes ago, Kelly Ray Finley. We haven't talked specifically about women's basketball, but that was an interesting situation in that she was the interim coach. And I think most people expected, okay, well, she'll be here. She'll you know keep the ship going and then there'll be a new coach coming in next year. And then something crazy happened, this, this alchemy where they went on this incredible run and then you ultimately removed that interim tag and now she's the future of that program. The results on the court were obvious for everybody out there to see. What were you able to find looking behind the scenes that gave you the confidence she was the right person for that permanent job? Well, it goes back to what I was just talking about. You know, she was a primary recruiter for the most of the current roster. So she, you know, and there's there's a talented group there in place um, that she was leading. So she has the ability to, to attract the right people. Um, and then obviously she did a great job leading that group. And helping them be successful. And, um, you know, it's interesting. You you made the comment that there was expectation there'd be a new coach. When when we named Kelly Ray uh, 
interim, uh, my, our quote we put out was that at the end of the season, we would name a permanent coach, not that we would name a new coach. Okay. <laughs> and so um, in, in, the, in the back of our mind, we knew that Kelly was a, was a candidate, right? That, that she had a chance because, you know, she, there's a lot of things there that a lot of her skills were obvious, right? Her abilities were pretty obvious there. And so um, just, you know, I'm, she, she is a breath of fresh air. I had uh, my 18 year old daughter had, had interaction with her here recently. And, um, and just, it just goes to show you how people connect with young, you know, with people of that age, that's recruiting age, right? Yeah. My, my daughter is not a recruitable athlete, <laughs> athlete to be recruited, but she came away just a huge Kelly Ray Finley fan because you can't help but be around her and not uh, be attracted to her presence, her, you know, the way she engages with people. And you can see why she's been successful as a recruiter and why she's going to be a successful leader of that program for years to come. So when we talked this time last year, I asked you how surprised you were uh, by Becky Burley's retirement. And now I want to ask you about another retirement. And that's, of course, Mick Hubert, which just happened a few weeks ago. Um, how surprised were you when, when Mick let you know? And and what what's, uh, what's his legacy? What are your memories of his time w- with the Gators? Well, I don't think you're ever prepared for that unless somebody comes in and says, hey, I'm, you know, in two years, I'm going to I'm going to transition out and they give you a, a head, you know, some advance notice. And that that's not the way Nick wanted to do it. He, you know, he uh, he came in, and just said, hey, I'm done. You know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm good. I'm ready to move on. Uh, I feel like I need to be doing something else right now with my life. And I'm not, you know, I'm not mad. I'm, uh, you know, I've, I love this place. It's just time for me to move on. And uh, I actually asked him, I said, hey, Mick, how about giving us a farewell year? And we yeah. can celebrate you. And he said, no, that's the last thing I want to do. I, you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm ready. So I was, you know, I was surprised by the suddenness of it. And, you know, Mick is, uh, Mick is kind of a part of that last era of, of radio play by play guys in the SEC mm-hmm. who came up in a period of time where not every game was on TV. Right. And so there was a, you know, for the last 10, 12 years, every game's on TV and the radio announcers were still important because not everybody can be by their TV and they still are the, uh, you know, provide the, the uh, backdrop, the calls for the great plays that, you know, we're going to put on social and we're going to relive for years. But there was a time where that was, they, they were the ones who were, you know, nestling up next to you on your radio dial right. and they were explaining exactly what was happening. And that was the only way you knew what was going on. And so there was a different, connection made back when Nick, when Mick first started his first 15 or so years with the Gators and he handled that that mantle that responsibility as gracefully and as professionally as as anyone could and did it with a, a great attitude never made it about himself always made it about the Gators made it about the players and really did an unbelievable service to Gator Nation and our fans for, for all those many years, those 33 plus years that, that he did that. And, and that's, to me, that's the highest honor you can say about somebody in that role is that they really serviced their audience and made sure that, that they were being taken care of and they were being included in, in the broadcast. And we won't hire another Mick Hubert, you know, Mm -hmm. for one thing that that connection won't be the same because every game is on TV, but it's still a really important position. And it's, uh, it's probably, evolved in the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, we have a lot of interest in, in you know, people who want the opportunity and, and uh, we're going to be able to select from a really talented pool of individuals. And, and then we all need to be patient and give them time 
to establish themselves in that role. You know, Mick will tell you the story that when he started in 89 calling Gator games, that it wasn't until the the Danny Warfel to Chris Doring touchdown pass against Kentucky in 93, four years later, that people started kind of like accepting him yeah. because he had a, a memorable call that, that they kind of rallied around. So the first time someone steps behind that headset and it's not mixed voice, it's not going to sound right. It's going to mm-hmm. be unusual for all of us, but um, confident we can find somebody that, that in time will establish themselves and, and create their own identity and be someone that Gators will come to, to love and appreciate the same way we did Nick. You know, we always talk about facilities whenever we have a chance to uh, to connect. And the next big one that's uh, about to roll out is the Heavener Football Complex, which you know has been years in the making. Uh, how close are we to uh, to opening those doors? And how do you feel about where the project is? Uh, it's it's coming along great. Uh, we sh- we're probably about a month, four to five weeks away from from letting our players uh, be able to move in there. Hmm. Um, it's you know. It, this, this is a really fun time part of the project. It's a fun time when you get to this point of the project where you walk in and every day um, really dramatic changes are taking place inside with finishes. Yeah. Hardwood floors are going in or, you know, uh, you know, fixtures or, or graphics and details that really, you know, make it come alive and pop. Uh, you know, the, it's, it's almost like the renderings that we've been looking at for two or three years are starting to come to life. Mm-hmm. Uh, from from an inside space standpoint, so it's you know it's going to have a make a huge impact on our football program. It's going to have a huge impact on our entire athletic program, the entire UAA. You know, the dining hall that's going to uh, service all of our student athletes, the recreation space for all of our student athletes, but just the the efficiency that our football team is going to uh, be able to take advantage of in the Hebner Football Training Center. Um, it's going to be unlike any we've ever had. And and the other part of it is, uh, you know, I know in, in this day and age, there's, there's NIL and there's other things people look at and they talk about when you talk about recruiting space, but facilities are still a, a physical embodiment of what a school's priorities are. And obviously football is a, is a priority for the university of Florida and the Hevner Center is going to be that that physical embodiment. When people walk in, they're going to go, "Wow, this is a place that really this is a really important enterprise for the University of Florida." Hmm. Well, that's something that obviously the players are going to get to experience intimately. The fans, their most intimate football experience comes in the swamp, and I know that's probably going to be where a lot of the focus is once that project is done. Um, what can you tell us about this multi-year plan to uh, improve the fan experience at the swamp? We're still working towards that. Um, we obviously aren't in a position to announce exactly what that looks like yet, but we're still having conversations with the professionals, design team, um, and cost estimators. This is going to be a really significant project. This is not a, you know, we're, this is not going to be a bandaid, you know, new paint job and new video board. Mm -hmm. There will be new video boards, but everything from, uh, the things the fans don't see, like, uh, having a kitchen on site to, to, you know, help the concession, uh, uh, product be better to uh, reimagining all of our premium spaces to me to reimagining all the concession uh, concourses and in public spaces entryways uh, seating bowl I mean everything everything's going to be touched on some level and so this is uh, it's a little bit like a, a giant puzzle and you're trying to mm-hmm. figure out the the you know how to attack it and, and at what level but um, you know we've we need to make sure that whatever happens in the swamp, 
extends the life expectancy of that facility for decades, not just for a few years. And so we need to be really thoughtful about that. And, and you're right, that, that totally is our focus right now. Now that the Hebner Center is, is about to come online and we finished the new soccer lacrosse expansion clubhouse, uh, which, which was a, about an $8 million project that we did this year as well. Um, the, the, the swamp is, is going to have our uh, complete attention from a facility standpoint uh, for the next couple of years. Just a moment ago, you mentioned NIL, the three letters that everyone's talking about in college sports, but few people understand how they actually work. Um, I, I know this is a really hot button issue. It's challenging right now. I'm curious, one year in, do you feel like the NIL system we have is working? Does it need guidelines? If so, do you have any thoughts on on what those should be? I think guidelines are tricky unless we want to end up uh, in court. And so, you know, the federal <laughs> government has kind of given us a pretty clear direction on that part. Um, we're all kind of navigating this and figuring it out. I would uh, caution people to, you know, divide by five anytime they hear something thrown out there about NIL or <laughs> something that's being reported. Um, you know, there's a lot of people trying to trying to uh, take advantage of this uh, situation. And obviously the ones who should be t- gaining advantage from it are, are the student athletes. And, um, you know, there's, there's two buckets of NIL that have come, uh, that have developed in the last year. One is the market driven. So a student athlete like a Karen Smith or a Bobby Fink or two uh, Olympic medal winning Gator swimmers currently on the roster here at UF who have had some sponsorship opportunities come their way because of their Olympic success. That is a market driven NIL opportunity. You know, right. Trinity Thomas, our gymnast, has had some of those. We've had some other gymnasts who've had some of those. The other is kind of the the fan driven NIL opportunities, which um, are are not really uh, there. I guess you could say they're market driven, but they're not like sponsorship driven. They're they're driven more from a uh, fan interest and recruiting and retention standpoint. Mm-hmm. That's the one that I think everybody is really uncomfortable with. Obviously. The way the NCAA rules are written, uh, NIL can't be used as a recruiting inducement, but we certainly want to make sure our athletes here at the university have the best experience possible when they're here. And whether that's providing them with great facilities or great coaching, great fan support, or NIL opportunities, we want to do everything we can within the rules to maximize their experience. And I feel like um, we've learned a lot in the last year. We continue to learn a lot in this space. But the University of Florida, regardless of, of um, what the model looks like, and the model has changed in the last year in college athletics, because we're a top five public university and, and uh, a top five athletic program with, you know, living in a state with 21 million people and, and incredible fan support and passion at Gator Nation, the University of Florida is going to be well positioned to take advantage of whatever the model is, whether that's NIL or we evolve into something else down the road. Another hot button issue is football scheduling, especially as it pertains to the SEC and what that's going to look like when expansion comes here in a couple of years. Do you have any thoughts on that, that that you can share in terms of where you think this might go? Because obviously it's what, you know, it drives a lot of fan conversation of are the divisions going to stay the same? Who will be the every year opponents? Who will rotate, et cetera? Where do yeah. you think we are on that at this moment in time? Well, there there's still some discussions that need to be had to lead to final decisions, but it's apparent that more than likely we're not going to have divisions in the SEC. That's not, that's not finalized, but that's my guess right now. We're not going to have divisions. 
And we are going to have more rotation within our conference schedule, meaning we'll have fewer permanent opponents, which would allow for the other teams to rotate through more often so we can get to other campuses more frequently. Whether that's an eight-game schedule or a nine-game schedule, I don't know. I prefer a nine-game schedule simply because I think that's what fans and players want, and that's who we're here to service. I think an eight-game schedule is is uh, for an administrator or a coach is a little self-preservation going on there, <laughs> um, which I get. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, uh, this is a tough league, but I just believe that the more we play SEC versus SEC, it makes our league stronger. And um, we all benefit from that. Now you're going to teams are going to, we're going to have more losses, but we're going to have, we're going to have wins too. And, and overall we're going to have more engagement with our fans and we're going to be giving our athletes the opportunity to compete against the very best. And when we talk about creating great experiences, that's, that's a pretty good experience. Watching two SEC teams compete in anything is a pretty special experience. And so to me, we should maximize that at every opportunity and um, we'll, we'll see where it works out. Not, you know, there's, there's some other opinions there. Do you have any sense on timeline of when those decisions will probably be made or when fans should expect to hear more about it officially? I, I really don't. Um, I, I wouldn't want to put a timeline on there. We obviously, uh, there's two things that to me impact the timeline. One is what year Texas and Oklahoma actually joined the league for competition right, right now. That's 25. There's a chance it may be a year earlier, but for sure we know about 25. And the other thing that I think impacts that, that potentially impacts the eight or nine game decision is what's the future of the college football postseason. Right now we have the four team CFP playoff for another four seasons. So 22, 23, 24, 25, starting 26. There's no, there's no format. There's no agreement for what that looks like. And probably is wise for us to have a better sense for what that postseason is going to look like in 26 before we make any long-term decisions about a scheduling model. Um, our league was very supportive of the 12 team proposal that was made for the CFP, uh, but that was not able to, to be agreed upon. So um, we're kind of back at square one as to what the future of the college football postseason is going to look like. And that's, that's something we need to determine. I know you have a meeting to go to quick question. Best thing you've seen recently TV-wise, best TV show you've seen and the one you're most looking forward to watching over the summer? I'm not done with it, even though I think it's it's all, all the episodes have been released, but uh, uh, The Offer, which oh, okay. is a series yeah. on Paramount Plus that is a retelling of how the movie The Godfather was made. Mm-hmm. You know, who doesn't love The Godfather? And so it's a, a fun little series that, that my wife and I have been watching. And then... Uh, I'm a big Peaky Blinders fan and there's a new season out and this summer is uh, that's on my to-do list is to, to watch the new season of Peaky Blinders. Have you seen the show hacks on HBO max? I have not. Is that Gene smart? It is. I have not seen that. That is, that is my gift to you. So I, okay. I will take, I will take your offer. I raise you a hacks, um, <laughs> <laughs> but Scott, thank you so much as always for your time. And we hope you have a great summer. Thanks Adam. Appreciate all you do, man. Go Gators. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. It may be the offseason, but be sure to come back here in a couple weeks as we'll have another special episode with new hoops coach Todd Golden. And after that, Billy Napier. 
Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.